This is Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition, with another episode of our podcast. Visit traditiononline.org, sign up for our newsletters, give us a like on Facebook, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Keep updated with all the offerings in our Journal of Orthodox Jewish Thought. Are you receiving our quarterly print journal delivered at home? Now is the time to subscribe or renew your subscription. As an incentive, if you do so right away, you'll receive our forthcoming issue, which marks the 120th birthday and 30th Yoritzeit of Rabbi Soloveitchik, a special collection of new scholarship exploring the enduring relevance of the Rav's thought in our world. In the 1970s, moral philosophy turned its attention to an ancient topic, but coined a new name to organize our thinking about it. That field, now known as moral luck, constitutes a set of fascinating and important philosophical debates with serious implications for both ethics and jurisprudence in civil society and within our own religious tradition. Rabbi Dr. Michael J. Harris recently published Resultant Moral Luck and Jewish Tradition in Tradition's Winter 2022 issue, examining the many significant sources within rabbinic literature that can be brought to bear on this discussion. Rabbi Harris is Senior Rabbi of the Hampstead Synagogue in London and Senior Research Fellow at the London School of Jewish Studies. The conversation delved into his essay and the literature surrounding moral luck, but also discussed how he navigates his role as both community rabbi and academic scholar, and the general state of philosophical inquiry and the liberal arts within modern orthodoxy today. Welcome to the Tradition Podcast, Rabbi Dr. Michael Harris. Thank you very much. In the realm of philosophy, which is an area that you spend a lot of time, in addition to your responsibilities there in the uh, Hampstead Synagogue, um, there are certain topics we, in our Jewish uh, parlance, would call them sugyot, uh, things like the happy slave or the trolley problem. And in the case of our conversation today, the topic of moral luck and the different varieties of moral luck that somehow fascinate those of us that spend a lot of time in the Beit Midrash. And we naturally gravitate towards these topics in philosophy and moral philosophy and try to figure out, okay, what's the Jewish angle? So before we get into today's specific topic of the really interesting essay that you wrote about moral luck or resultant moral luck, how does that take place in your in your mind as someone with one foot in the in the world of the academy and philosophy and one world in the synagogue and study hall? How does that kind of connection of trying to think about what's the Talmudic angle, the rabbinic angle, the Jewish angle on a particular topic in contemporary philosophy? Uh, I think it comes up quite naturally just from um, trying to have a foot in both worlds. Um, I think that uh, part of it, I think, has to do with the method of reasoning. Um, a uh, friend of mine. Uh, who is uh, quite secular, describes, uh, says that he was describing to very Dati relatives um, what he did as a professional philosopher. And he described, uh, he described philosophy to them as Talmud without Torah. <laughs> um, and uh, 
it's a way of thinking uh, that we try and reason through a sugya, mm -hmm. um, the kinds of questions we ask, the analytic approach we take um, has a great deal in common with the methodology of the uh, analytic Western philosophical tradition. Um, and therefore, I think for anyone who's involved with both, uh, it's quite natural that one will be in one field or the other uh, at any given moment and think, hang on a second, there's something very relevant here in the other field. Mm -hmm. And for yourself, does that, do those questions flow in, in both directions from the Beit Midrash to the, to the lecture hall and vice versa? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, definitely. Sometimes they arise in one context and uh, sometimes in the other. Um, and actually, um, most of, of my published work has been at the interface as a result of questions like that arrive, uh, arising in one context or the other. Okay, so before we, uh, you know, pull down Masechet Bavakama from the shelf and, and open up the, uh, the Sifrei Kodesh, why don't you introduce us to this topic of, of moral luck or the specific variety of resultant moral luck, which was kind of first advanced, you know, even though these were ideas that that, that existed. I mean, you know, you point to precedents in our own tradition going back millennia, but uh, until we give a topic a, a name, uh, we don't really start to categorize it in the same way. So in the 1970s, there were a pair of articles uh, by, by uh, Nagel, by Thomas Nagel and, and Bernard Williams uh, in conversation with each other on this topic of moral luck. So introduce to our listeners, what is this, what is this topic? Uh, so the topic of moral luck uh, Jeff is um, a uh, really a major philosophical problem, um, which got its name as you uh, point out originally in the 1970s. That very influential pair of articles. There was actually an earlier uh, earlier writings by Joel Feinberg in 1970, um, but obviously very recently the, the terminology is created uh, coined very recently in the history of, of philosophy. Um, so the problem uh, is that uh, we have a very strong intuition that uh, assessment, moral assessment of other people, or indeed moral assessment of ourselves, um, should be uh, based only on factors which are within the control of the person acting. Uh, in other words, it's not fair for me to blame my friend for doing something wrong, for example, um, if uh, his doing something wrong uh, was to do with circumstances uh, beyond his control. Um, and um, Nagel uh, and Williams and Nagel both talk about several kinds of moral luck. Um, I focus in the article on, in traditional resultant moral luck, because I think that's where we have the richest Makorot, but it's a wider concept. So to give one, uh, before going into resultant moral luck without, uh, to give one other exa example, example of moral luck of another kind, um, there is what Nagel calls constitutive moral luck. Um, so, you know, we are born with certain inclinations, um, certain abilities, um, certain uh, inner tendencies. Um, of course, um, there is a measure of control that we have over these, but to a large extent, they influence our behavior to a very great degree. And they are not under our control our, in our genetic inheritance, for example, it's not something that we can choose. We're just born with it and yet it affects our actions to a great degree. Um, and so there is a problem, a striking example um, that I think Nagel gives is someone who we condemn uh, rightly 
um, as a Nazi um, would uh, who uh, you know uh, who uh, performed terrible actions um, during the Holocaust um, perhaps would have led an utterly blameless life uh, had they been born um, in Africa in the 19th century. Um, or had they been born, wouldn't have been presented with the same moral challenges in which he fails at born into right. Nazi society. Exactly, exactly. Um, and indeed, the formation of that society, you know, he, that, that uh, the Nazi may have been born in, in uh, Germany or Austria, wherever exactly the same time that he was born. Um, but the political social circumstances might have been such that the Nazis never came to power and he would never have had that op the opportunity to be faced with the moral uh, trials which he failed. Um, so that's one. And, and yet we uh, will heartily condemn um, the person who actually became a Nazi uh, and did terrible things, uh, whereas there may be uh, goodness knows how many other uh, people kicking around in the world who would have done exactly the same had they but they go untested and, and therefore they, they they're lucky in the fact that they don't have to face that test and possibly fail absolutely they're lucky in their circumstances circumstantial moral luck so in the article in tradition um, i focus on resultant moral luck um, i think is the the variety that's probably much more familiar to people whether they have a name for it or not yes I think that's right. Yes, I think uh, resultants are easy for us to get a grasp on, um, and as as, I'm, as we'll discuss, um, appears uh, in in the in, in the Makarot fairly extensively. Um, so, resultant moral luck perhaps is best introduced with uh, Thomas Nagel's example in his article. Um, imagine uh, a truck driver who has not checked um, his brakes properly. Uh, and goes out in the truck and tragically um, a child runs out in front of the truck and he kills the child. Um, so uh, if he is a person with normal um, moral uh, sentiments, a normal, uh, normal psychological makeup, su such a person will, the truck driver will blame himself um, intensely will feel terrible um, about what's happened um, and indeed will be uh, blamed severely by others um, and uh, indeed by the criminal justice system in many societies which won't uh, hold him as guilty as it would had he deliberately gone out and done this but will certainly uh, punish him for his negligence. Um, contrast this uh, Nagel suggests with a driver who is equally negligent, um, she fails to check her brakes. Uh, she goes out in her truck on the road, but nothing untoward happens. No child runs out in front and she arrives at the at the truck depot uh, safely. I can't believe I'm saying truck. I should be saying lorry. <laughs> arrives Our American at the... audience, we've translated all of your terminology. <laughs> but it arrives at the depot uh, safely. Uh, then uh, she will not uh, blame herself, like she probably won't give the, her journey another thought, other people won't blame her, she's not in any kind of trouble with the law, and yet the negligence is the same. Yeah. Um, and so much in our lives, Nagel says, uh, is um, subject to that kind of, um, of uh, phenomenon, where even if if you he points to a, a central uh a central conflict of intuitions here if you were to ask someone in the abstract 
should people be blamed for matters that are beyond their control um which for which many philosophers use luck as the shorthand in the moral luck literature if you were to ask someone should people be blamed for what's beyond their control they would answer no but as soon as you focus on particular instances um then like the truck drivers we're liable to have a strong intuition going the other way that the person who caused bad results um is morally more blameworthy than the person who didn't the person who just got lucky and missed that yeah, yeah. child in the street by an inch yeah so okay that's that's moral luck it's a fairly easy enough idea to get your mind around and often in moral philosophy the the problem is phrased in such a way that it's such a intuitively easy idea to grasp i mentioned the famous case of the the trolley problem lifeboat ethics etc these are you know in the abstract they become parlor games of trying to you know get our idea around get our heads around certain ideas but when we think about this as an as an actual case of 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 moral judgment and frankly of jurisprudence how long should each person go to jail if at all uh, so the halakha has an opinion uh, you know, there's there's an area, a corner of human existence that the halacha doesn't have an opinion about. So when you consider this problem and then you turn to the bookshelves behind us and you start examining the makarot, what do you find and what did you find? What result did, did we did we offer our readers in, in our recent issue and tradition? Um, so um, what we found, Jeff, was a range of makarot um dealing with uh situations from uh various areas of halakha and indeed uh agatic uh literature non-legal literature as well um and we found um an array of uh different kinds of relevant cases um clustered around um a distinction between um intention um and result or outcome um so uh in cases where sometimes the intention is good uh, and the result is bad or vice versa all kinds of combinations so to make this more concrete uh with a real example um we have um a gemara which appears in uh, tractate kiddushin and uh, in uh, tractate nazir where Rabbi Akiva, uh, Rabbi Akiva uh, talks about the person who uh, stretches out their hand in order to take a piece of non-kosher meat, um, but uh, accidentally, as it were, not in accordance with their intention, takes a piece of kosher meat. So um, you know, the scenario I think of here is uh, one's at a reception, um perhaps ones that's an interfaith reception where the people who have organized it have kindly provided kosher food for the jewish guests and they've also provided um, non-kosher food uh for the non-jewish guests and the jewish guest uh there thinks to himself here is my opportunity to try a piece of non-kosher meat uh, which i've always wanted to and hopefully no one will spot me stretches out his hand uh to take a piece of non-kosher meat someone is talking to him slightly uh knocks in his knocks his hands which uh but then goes uh, accidentally unwillingly to the tray of kosher meat and takes the tray of kosher meat so it uh, takes a piece of kosher meat uh 
So as, as Rabbi Akiva puts it in the Talmud, uh, intended to eat pig and ends up eating kosher lamb. Um, so Rabbi Akiva says that um, that person um, requires divine forgiveness and atonement um, for even if he just ate kosher meat, in other words, solely for the bad intention. Uh, in fact, uh, Rabbi Akiva makes um, what we call um, be familiar to many listeners as a kalva chomer, uh, as an inference um, from uh, from major to minor, which is that uh, if so Rabbi Akiva says if someone who uh, intended to eat non-kosher but ate kosher requires divine atonement, then how much the more so kalva chomer, um, someone who intended to eat non-kosher meat and successfully carried through their intention and et non-kosher. Um, so uh, that uh, I think is very, here we have a case of uh, of moral luck, um, avant la lettre, in other words, uh, you know, millennia before the term is invented coined. in analytic yeah. philosophy. Sorry. Yeah, before the term is coined, the concept the existed. Coined. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, also when one should say here that this is really you know what one might say this is religious luck rather than moral luck strictly speaking because we're in the ritual realm here um well, know, this was an interesting in the in the work of editing through your paper this is one of the interesting uh points of back and forth that you as author and i as editor had in other words is it is it purely ritual or do we view that as also verging on or overlapping with areas of morality which are clearly different than the morality connected to, shall we say, Dinei Nezikin, laws of damages, of, of, of causing bodily image, bodily injury or injury to property. But you know, the, the halachic expanse of morality doesn't map on identically with the field as defined in secular philosophy necessarily. Secular philosophy doesn't see it as, as immoral to eat one piece of meat over another piece of meat. Yeah. But in, in Judaism, it's quite different. And uh, there was some finessing in the paper, which the readers can can see of, of how we yes. kind of uh, dealt with that topic. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Um, but um, however we resolve that fascinating issue, uh, it's easy to see that the kind of underlying logic of, of uh, moral luck is here in this case of Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. Here, here one's intention was to do something wrong, religiously wrong, morally wrong, um, however we define it, and yet through factors beyond one's control, one ended up um, not doing anything wrong. Um, so uh, so there we have Rabbi Akiva saying um, the intention is very important, but fascinatingly also um, by making that, that Kalva Chome, by making that logical move, Rabbi Akiva is clearly saying if the bad intention uh, ends up being successful, then that is even worse than uh, the bad intention which uh, results in uh, something which is religiously neutral, eating a piece of, of kosher lamb. Um, so uh, so that, that's one uh, area where uh, the issue comes up. Um, perhaps to take a non-halakhic example, and uh, the uh, same page of the Talmud in Kiddushin, uh, we have a most fascinating uh, narrative concerning uh, Rabbi Chia Barashi, um, who, and this is a, an episode in the Talmud which obviously um, is uh, 
open to um, rich analysis from many different perspectives, but just looking at it from the more luck point of view, uh, Robert Khir Barashi uh, basically has, uh, seems to have um, taken on uh, some kind of uh, practice of abstinence from um, intimate relations with his wife. Um, and uh, eventually in the story, um, his wife uh, dresses up as a prostitute um, and uh, Rabbi Khir Barashi, uh, not realizing that it's his wife, has relations with her. Um, and uh, then despite his wife's um, reassuring him afterwards that the woman with whom he had relations was her, his wife, um, nevertheless, um, he judges himself extremely um, severely um, and uh, the implication of he judges himself really as severely as if he had slept with a woman uh, other than other than his wife. So here we have a non-halakhic context um, and here there seems to be a very powerful um, emphasis on the importance of intention, even if no harm results. So that's an interesting question is when you take this uh, this topic in philosophy here moral luck and then you look at our canon you go to the jewish bookshelf to try to find the precedents so uh, you know the the sea of halakha is vast and there are halakhic uh, uh, materials and there are agadic materials there are legal materials and there are shall we say philosophical materials our own philosophical uh, traditions um do you find that uh, that the orientation to the question differs whether you look to this shelf, the the rabbinic uh, halachic shelf, or that shelf, the ethical, moral, agadic shelf? On this particular issue of resultant moral luck, yeah. uh, yes, I think there is. Uh, I think there is a difference. Um, Aaron Kirschenbaum, um, professor of, of law uh, and uh, very accomplished scholar. Uh, in an article uh, in Ivrit uh, many years ago on moral luck and how um, the halakha compares to secular legal systems, um, emphasizes that the halakha deals with the real world. Um, halakha has to focus on the world as it is, and therefore uh, halakha is more oriented towards results. Um, than perhaps the Agadic material is. So in the Agadic example of Rabbi Khir Barashi that we just discussed, uh, Rabbi Khir Barashi is taking intention uh, extremely seriously. Um, but uh, in when we are dealing with pure halakha, uh, we often need to focus on the results more. Uh, so whereas one the might... Examining... Say, examining did this act constitute a sin or did it not constitute a sin? Yes, did it should a sin, absolutely. And, and in particular, did it constitute a sin which the human bet din um, would, uh, would need to act on, would, would come before human course of law. Um, so uh, there, for example, in pure moral terms, we might say that attempted murder is as bad as murder. Um, if I take a gun out, and shoot, uh, aim a gun towards someone and pull the trigger and a, and a bird happens to fly in the way at the crucial moment, takes the bullet, um, one might say that morally that is every bit as bad as, as murder. It's um, a clear case of, of moral luck. Um, whereas 
um, the halakha, like many systems of secular law, uh, will place a great deal of, of emphasis on the result. And this is this is uh, attempted murder, um, not murder. And there are there are interesting reasons for that. Um, the moral luck literature um, talks about uh, the epistemic angle. As on, so off, often our knowledge that someone had a bad intention only exists because of something they did. Um, you know, whereas, of course, at, at the from God's perspective, um, as it were, um, he sees the intentions. He intentions. Yeah. intentions. He knows the intentions. Yeah. So, but the halakha is it's it's you know it's human beings trying to put God's law into operation in the real world, and therefore we need to focus more on on action. So that there is that difference between the as it were the halakhic and the non halakhic bookshelves. So one of the interesting things, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong or sharpen my understanding. Uh, you begin this examination, and it turns out, of course, that moral luck does exist as a halachic, legal, hashkafic category within our tradition. But in some ways, it's actually even more expansive than it is in general philosophy. Uh, more, more expansive in in, in what, what did you have well, in, in mind? In the sense that, in the sense that it looks to fields beyond beyond laws of damages uh it looks yeah, also yeah, to the sure. ritual realm it looks also to the realm there's an aspect in the article where you kind of flip the question of course it's related to the larger sugya uh, that many of our listeners must be familiar with about mitzvot tzrichot kavana right if we can also accidentally do a do a mitzvah the gemara imagines all types of or we could accidentally of course do a verot uh the gemara imagines all types of outlandish possibly uh, impossible acts in this world, which would simultaneously uh, either fulfill mitzvot or perform averot, um, uh, uh, you know, in in the in the ritual realm, uh, which is beyond the uh, concern of the moral philosophers uh, and, uh, and and moral luck. Uh, sure. But it, it could be that there are areas in which moral luck, the moral luck uh, crowd, you know, would would let the person off the hook, where we, if not, if not if not legally, um, but but ethically, would judge rather harshly, as the as the case of Priya Barashi that you mentioned. Right. Yes. Um, and actually, Jeff, you, um, what what you uh, mentioned about the contrast between the, the the realms, as it were, of ritual and and ethics, uh, brings to mind one example I deal with in the article, which is. Uh, fascinating dispute between Rabbah and Rava uh, in the Gemara, the Talmud in Menachot, um, regarding uh, someone who does something wrong on the ritual, Ben Azam Lamakom, between man and God's side, mm -hmm. and something great on the interpersonal level, namely um, someone who, fish, who goes fishing on Shabbat, mm -hmm. uh, so prohibition on Shabbat, um, casts his net into the water, and up comes the fish that he was intending to get, but also a child who, unbeknown to the fishermen, have been. He saved his life. He saved his life. Saved his life, yeah. Um, or perhaps known to him in different different uh, iterations of the case there. Saves his life. So there, um, Rabba and Rava dispute, uh, are in dispute as to whether we follow uh, the person's intentions or, or his actions, and therefore whether or not he's liable for, uh, for breaking Shabbat. Um, and absolutely, that is a case which, um, from our uh, 
point of view of commitment to halakha, we'd look at very different from, for example, a secular ethicist who would obviously discount the the the, the fishing on Shabbat is an, is an irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are just a sampling of some of the very many uh, examples that you lead the reader through, and I do commend the article to our listeners' attention. It's it's open access on traditiononline.org. But I want to I want to push you in a in a different direction in the little bit of time that that's left to us. Sure. Uh, many years ago, there was a, a book that was published uh, through Yeshiva University uh, called The Rabbinate as Calling and v Vocation. It was a very interesting book, which one doesn't see uh, too much anymore, but I think an updated version of it would be would be very useful. It, it was a collection of essays by, by rabbis, almost all congregational rabbis, mostly in North America, but elsewhere as well. And they each spoke about different aspects of the rabbinate. You know, uh, to be a rabbi, as, as you know very well, requires a constellation of skills and talents that very few people uh, possess all of. Um, and we do our best with the talents that we have. Some rabbis, you know, make their mark as uh, in the homiletic sphere. They're known as great speakers. Other rabbis are known as halachic geniuses. They're known for their scholarship others for their piety, others for their role in communal work or in fundraising or in education, you name it, there's no end to it. And the way that each rabbi, and particularly today when so few rabbis are occupied full-time in their, in their synagogue and rabbis are, are busy doing other things, we understand a rabbi who also spends time teaching in the local day school. We understand how those two aspects of, of, his, uh, of his career and life fit, fit together. What does it mean today to be a rabbi of a prominent modern Orthodox synagogue in London, where you have served now for many years, and to also be engaged fully and deeply in the world of analytic philosophy. How do those things two fit together? How would you like your congregants to think of what you're doing, you know, in your in your in your side gig? Right? How do the two overlap and how do they contribute to each other? Besides the fact that here you take two different topics and you you put them together and something really interesting comes out for the readers of, of tradition. But, you know, let's say larger spheres of your career. How do these two, two realms intersect? Uh, that's a great question, Jeff. Thank you. And it's obviously one that's constantly uh, on my mind. Um, I read the book, Rabbinus is Calling Vocation, as a, a young Smicha student. And uh, yeah, I still that, have that's what I encountered it as well. Right. I still have it on my shelf. It was a great, uh, a great book, a very, very helpful one. Um, the way I think I can answer this with a concrete example growing out of this uh, article. This article actually began life as a mini Shabbat Shuva drasha um, during COVID uh, when we, I think we just come back to our shul mm. um, and everyone was speaking for a much shorter time than usual. So you know, normally treat myself to 45 minutes an hour Shabbat Shuva drasha, but this was, you know, 25 minutes um, and I just had this germ of an idea about bringing um, these sugyot together regarding moral luck. Um, and um, I'm very fortunate in having a community with um, many very intelligent congregants who are uh, often particularly interested in law and in philosophy. Um, and um, having uh, given this shear, which at the time I never occurred to me could be an article, I began to, people asked questions, I began to look into it further, realized the range of Makorot, 
um, and then the uh, the article resulted uh, from it. So, and that I think is uh, in miniature um, how um, the having one foot in the communal rabbinate and one foot in the academic world can um, produce a really useful symbiosis. Um, I find, you know, often um, with uh, things I publish, they've uh, started off as something that I've tried to teach um, in shul, then I've gone away and worked on it more, um, often then come back and given a more uh, expansive presentation um, in a communal setting. And, and of course, doing it in a communal setting, Jeff, as you know very well from your, your own educational uh, activities, um, forces one to not to be too technical, uh, to be clear, to be accessible, right. um, and uh, to, to make things um, open to the non-specialist. Um, who will and the non-specialists also will come at, at uh, Sugyot with from angles which perhaps professional philosophers wouldn't um, and therefore uh, in terms of um, education uh, and therefore it, when when I always say on, on good days um, the academic and the communal are enhancing each other there are of course bad days when they seem to me to be getting in each other's way um, but most of the time thank god um, they seem to enhance each other um, and uh, I guess make me look at um, issues I think about on two levels, one uh, from the perspective of, of analytic philosophy, um, but also at the level of how am I going to teach this as Torah to intelligent uh, Balabatim, to intelligent non-philosophers, um, and, um, and I, think it's, uh, uh, I think it's very, it's a very good combination. Um, and my heroes, as a, going back to our youth, yeah, but my heroes, uh, two of my heroes as a, as a young Smicha student were Zichronam uh, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, Rabbi Dr. Walter Wurzburger, um, who had this combination. I mean, obviously, right. my, two, case, my, two, uh, my two very distinguished predecessors. Yes, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously, uh, that they had other strings to their bows, to their respective bows as well. Um, but that's a combination which, uh, which I think um, has become somewhat unfashionable. Um, but I think it is a the, the rabbi uh, as the rabbi as philosopher, the rabbi as philosopher, or the rabbi as as uh, academic scholar. Um, also, purely because of the way, obviously, in which uh, academic scholarship brings new dimensions to Torah study. And vice versa. Um, you know, I, I always think of uh, my key example is always Aviva Zornberg's work. Had she not um, immersed herself in English literature, psychology, and other disciplines, then we would never have had the wonderful books of commentary on Chumash um, that she's produced. Uh, and we miss so much um, by not bringing. Um, Torah study and um, academia into conversation with each other. Well, you, know, you touched on, on an interesting uh, phenomena, which I don't think we have data on, but I think uh, anecdotally, you know, which is just as good as data, of course, uh, for our purposes, uh, uh, at least one anecdote is a half a piece of data. Um, I think we know it's true. Uh, the rabbi as academic, the rabbi as philosopher, the rabbi as public intellectual, seems to be a shrinking role. Uh, someone told me recently, again, with no data, that in the younger set of American uh, rabbis, 
uh, people, let's say uh, half a generation younger than you or I, there are more uh, MDs or people with with doctorates in in psychology or people working rabbis with degrees in as therapists than there are rabbis with PhDs in the humanities, uh, liberal arts broadly broadly defined. There's the old idea of the doctor rabbiner, the rabbi doctor. Um, is a, is a shrinking is a shrinking uh, uh, area of our of our career. Why why do you think that is? Why do you think uh, uh, you know there? I mean, why there are no uh, Doctor Rabbi Doctor Norman Lambs or Rabbi Doctor Walter Wurzbergers? Uh, okay, those were singular individuals. But but why do you think the rabbi as as uh, as academic philosopher king uh, public intellectual is in the state it's in? Yeah, um, actually, it's a fascinating question, Jeff. I, first of all, I just want to draw a distinction um, between the academic, um, as it were, and the uh, public intellectual. Um, well, correct. Think, yeah, one can be um, one without the other, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think obviously an outstanding example of public intellectual Rabbi Sachs, Ichwan Racha, um, there's a conference in, in memory of in Barilan. Coming up uh, in Barilan. Looking forward to, very much to, to coming to Hashem. Um, and uh, that obviously presents its own set of challenges, which he handled obviously with global success. Um, the uh, the academic, you know, that the academic uh, scholar who's a rabbi may not be a public intellectual and may be um, working in a much more conventional way, trying to publish papers, etc., which are not getting um, you know huge numbers of, of readers. Um, but, but I think that that is uh, intensely valuable. Um, why it has, why it's in eclipse to such an extent, I think, is to do with a lot of factors. Um, one factor which I suspect, I mean, it's interesting that, you, you know, we know this is happening in North America as well. Um, one factor within the England, I think, or the United Kingdom is your good old uh, Anglo- Saxon Philistinism, uh, where the the life of the intellect um, is, uh, you know, always viewed with a degree of suspicion. And whenever you hear you talk to a young person who's studying a liberal arts at university, they'll they'll tell you immediately of a Jewish uh, uh, um, parent or uncle or aunt who's saying, "And what are you going to do with your degree?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's still very much uh, part of the culture. What what use is it to anyone? Um, but obviously it's uh, in North America as, as well. I think, um, look, I think there's, we know that globally there's been a general dumbing down. Um, you well, know, there's, uh, whether it's a dumbing down or it's just a reorientation, higher education has reoriented itself around the more quote unquote practical disciplines for yeah. very obvious uh, financial pressures. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but what, sure. Um, but whether of, yeah. Uh, but whether people got the patience for, you know, for really sustained um, literary and philosophical studies in the way they used to. Well, it um, is, I mean, but there is a, a chicken and egg. In other words, uh, people get oriented towards different areas of study and yeah. the muscles that are required to do something contrary are weakened or they yeah. don't have those orientations to begin with. So they're naturally gravitate towards the other things. A number of years ago, couple of years ago i was visiting princeton uh and uh i was at the the center for jewish life where 
very impressive. You know, years ago when when I was uh, graduating high school, I was told you you can't go to Princeton as a religious Jew. Kashrut, Shabbat, etc. It's just it's just not possible. Shortly after I was at that point in my life, it began to change, and now it's incredibly, it's remarkable. I I was visiting with a nephew of mine who had studied in yeshiva here for a few years, and uh, the amount of Torah study that was going on, and the kosher life, and the minion, and the synagogue. It's, it's, it's really quite quite impressive, uh, considering that in our lifetime, you know, there was a period where it was unimaginable for, for Jews to be walking around Princeton with a kippah on their head. So I asked, you know, sitting around at breakfast, what's everybody, what's everybody studying? And almost everyone, to a person, math, math, engineering, you know, computers, uh, everything in the realm of STEM. I said, is no one studying the humanities? So somebody lowered their voice and pointed to a young woman on the other side of the room and said, she's studying whatever it was, uh, you know, Italian, Italian poetry, right? The early poems of Edith Wharton, you know, Renaissance sonnet, whatever it was. And, but then hastens to add, but she'll never get, I thought they were going to say never get a job. The person said, she'll never get a shidduch. <laughs> so I think that attitude, yeah. you know, uh, although we laugh at it, it, it represents something troubling in, in, uh, in the world. So, yeah. Um, but I think also, Jeff, the part of the reason um, maybe that this um, model of rabbi as academic has um, become marginalized is this sheer range of demands, as you indicated earlier in, in the job, which of course have only become greater right. as time has gone on. I still remember when I came to my shul um, in 1995, there was no email, <laughs> um, let alone there were smart... no cell phones. There were no, there were no yeah, yeah, uh, sure. And um, that okay, so the telephone used to go to, to ring more than it does now, but nevertheless, the pace of life in has only increased, pressures have only increased, and um, well, then we're. We're all the more grateful that you are standing on the barricade and producing the type of scholarship that you've shared with us in, in tradition uh, now and in the past and hopefully in, in the future uh, to bring these different uh, traditions of intellectual thought into communication with each other to try to explore how realms of general philosophy intersect with our own traditions and our own learning and our own uh, Beit Midrash uh, in ways that are mutually enlightening in in uh, in both directions the essay is uh, resultant moral luck and the jewish tradition which appeared in the winter 2022 issue of tradition available open access at traditiononline.org rabbi dr michael harris thank you so much for being with us thank you so much jeff and thanks for everything you and tradition are doing uh, to provide a forum for uh, fascinating debates within the jewish community